Hello friends, I'm Ashish Darbari, founder and CEO of Axomize. And to our new listeners, welcome and to our old ones, welcome back. Today I have a friend from not very far, I would say geographically speaking, and also professionally speaking, we are quite close to what we do. An unusual combination of industrial experience and academic experience. Friends, I'm talking about my friend, Professor Alistair Donaldson. He's a professor um, at Imperial College, Computer Science Department. Hello, Alistair. Welcome. Hi, Ashish. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, uh, it's a pleasure. And I've just heard that you've become a professor. And uh, presumably, this is now your what first external uh, communication happening as a professor. So very happy. That's right. Excellent. Yeah, congratulations! Very excited, congratulations! Very well. Hey, um, it's been a it's been quite a task to get you to join me as a, as a guest because you've been so busy over the summer doing so many different things, other than your day job, uh, organizing a conference and you know um, running an undergraduate program at Imperial. So thank you very much uh, for taking time out and uh, coming today for a chat. Um, I'm sure our guest listeners would certainly love what we're going to talk about. So, hey, uh, before we dive deep into what do you do, it would be always interesting to catch up with your uh, early years and how did you end up being in science uh, and computer science in particular? Sure. Well, um, I grew up in the city of Glasgow. I moved, my family moved to Glasgow when I was seven years old from the south of England. And when I was a teenager, I was kind of interested in computing and programming, and I used to mess around with my Atari ST computer back then. But my main passion was rock music. I was in a, a band in my at school, uh, was very serious about making a career as a musician, and I didn't intend to pursue a career in computer science. I intended to pursue a career in music. Uh-huh. So I went to the University of Glasgow, which is a great university, but my main reason for going there was to have a backup in case my band didn't work out. So I studied. <laughs> so this is, your, this is your backup career then, hey? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So I have a band. Uh, it didn't work out. So yeah, during my first year of university, that band um, broke up. And I was then pretty fortunate to realize I really enjoyed studying computing. Mm-hmm. And somewhat to my surprise, I really enjoyed studying mathematics at university. At Glasgow University, studying mathematics was a a requirement if you were studying computing. So you had to get good enough grade in the first year of mathematics if you wanted to proceed with computing as your major. But during my first year, I, I kind of enjoyed the mathematics and decided in my second year to continue doing mathematics as my backup subject as well as computing. And it was in second year of university that the mathematics got really interesting. It became all about proofs and we started to do linear algebra and analysis from first principles. And actually, I then decided to do a combined honours degree, so to do mathematics and computing on an equal footing. Um, And it was really that that got me into initially a career in formal methods, because during my final year of university, I um, was really interested in group theory, a branch of mathematics, and I was really into programming and programming languages. And I did a final year project with Alice Miller, who's a professor at Glasgow University on investigating symmetries of the state graphs of concurrent systems. And that is then what led me to do a PhD on symmetry and model checking, model checking being a formal verification technique and symmetry reduction being a way to to make model checking more tractable. I 
I believe you also did your PhD on a on a similar topic, right? Yeah, I I was just having those um, <laughs> moments uh, going back in time, and I was thinking, wow, Glasgow we have in common, and you mentioned Alice, uh, who was also there at my time, and yeah, uh, I was also looking at symmetries and model checking. Very interesting, uh, very interesting indeed. But what I kind of picked up was that you're particular bringing up and you were interested in music. That seems to be quite a common theme uh, with the number of uh, <laughs> mathematicians and computer scientists I've been speaking to or, or reading about. There's this um, interest in music that um, gives them a particular kind of incentive to pursue CS or maths or a combination. But what is also quite interesting and if I may say unusual is knowing a little bit about your mother's side and your mother wasn't actually a computer scientist. She was, um, she is still is a, is a story writer, right? Um, she writes yeah, books. Right. Yeah. And, and you, um, and you decided not to go in literature and instead chose to come to music or, or maths and CS, which is even more interesting. So uh, very nice. Yeah. My parent, one thing I'm really grateful to my parents for is that they always encouraged me, my, myself and my brothers to follow our own interests. Sure. And didn't, yeah. They gave us loads of opportunities and um, yeah. did push us quite hard on music as a to to learn to play some instruments. But in terms of a career, I felt like I had tons of career support from my parents, but no kind of career pressure. So there was sure. never any pressure to study a certain subject. Yeah. And they always kind of led me to think that things are interesting for their own sake. And if, if you're able to, if you're you know lucky enough financially to go and study things because they excite you and treat career as a secondary thing to that. Mm. No, of course, I mean, this is the best way uh, for kids to do any kind of learning. So Alistair, what happened then? So you finished your PhD and I presume you started a postdoc here in South. Actually, I did after, so I, was, I finished my PhD and I was still, I got into a new band by this time. That brand was called Latonic, L-A-T-O-N-I-C, and you can find our music on Spotify if okay. you're interested. <laughs> and so I was, during, during my PhD, I really didn't know what I wanted to do with my career long term. I still, well, I still wanted to be a rock musician. That was still like a major goal of mine. But I had really started to enjoy research and teaching. And as well as model checking, which I found interesting, I also got into compilers properly. I didn't do a compiler undergraduate course because I did this combined degree of maths and computing. I had to sacrifice a bunch of computing subjects and a bunch of math subjects in order to do both. So I had never properly studied compilers. And during my PhD, I needed to do some work that involved taking a model in Promola, which is the modeling language for the model checker I was mm -hmm. using and doing some analysis of it. And Simon Gay at the University of Glasgow, he gave me some pointers to how to do it properly. I think I told him how I was doing it using some Perl script that would hack through the file and grep for keywords and change things around. And he said, well, you know, you could do this in a more principled way, actually. And he introduced me to Sable CC, which is an automatic parser generator. Uh -huh. And so during my PhD, I worked a bit on um, a type checker for this modeling language and got quite interested in compilers. So by the end of my PhD, I knew I was, I knew that if the music didn't work out, that I did want to pursue a career in academia or was pretty sure I did. But I didn't want to carry on working on symmetry reduction and model checking. I thought it had been a fun thing to work on during a PhD and I'd really enjoyed it. But I felt during my PhD, I was 
looking for examples the whole time. So I had this technique and I was looking for examples where it was useful. And I kept finding systems that nearly had symmetry or was almost symmetric and had to change them manually to make them a bit more perfect. And then my technique would work and would work well. But I didn't come across natural problems in the wild where this technique was really useful. And that was a kind of lesson I've taken through my research career, which is to try and look for problems first and then come up with a solution that maybe is biased towards my interests, but nevertheless, a solution to a real problem rather than first of all, think, what would I like to do technique wise? And then afterwards go looking for a problem to solve with that. Yes. So after my PhD, I actually applied for a job with Codeplay, a compiler company based in Edinburgh and worked as a software developer there for two and a half years. And that was a really interesting experience. That's where I got into multi-core programming and right about that time, the cell processor, which was in the PlayStation 3 games console, mm -hmm. was an really interesting processor. And Coplay were doing some work on compilers for the cell. And during my work on one of those compilers, I had a horrible concurrency bug, just the worst bug, where I felt like I was floundering around in the dark trying to even understand what the bug was and get it fixed. And I kept thinking, I kept finding some race condition and adding some synchronization committing my code and then the next day someone else on the team would come and say to me my bill has failed the tests but i'm pretty sure it's nothing it's one of your tests that's failing and i don't see how my commit could have affected it and it would be because it was a concurrency bug and actually i hadn't fixed it it was still it just had passed the continuous integration for me mm -hmm. um and when i finally got to the bottom of this bug which was a, a stack corruption bug i really thought actually some formal verification of this problem would have really helped if I could have written down using a modeling language the problem um, and then used a model checker to actually you know look for all of the different sequences of events that could have occurred it would have very quickly found this bug uh -huh. and I then that really reignited my interest in formal verification and model checking mm -hmm. and I, I wrote a fellowship proposal to go to the University of Oxford to pursue some research on formal verification of multi-core software Nice. Well, what a journey and very impressive that you actually spend time in the industry. And that's what I believe is the best combination. And um, one of my supervisors in Bangalore, when I was working at GM, um, used to describe this as split between academic life and industry. And he used to say um, in universities, scientists are working with solutions and trying to find problems to apply. In industry, right. people have real problems and they're looking for solutions. And in GM's case, in the R&D lab that I was in, we were looking at doing this matching, but we were always looking for solving problems, not adapting solutions to, uh, which is not necessarily a wrong thing to do, but I believe it's much more enjoyable if you're solving real problems. Um, yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, it depends who you are. For me, it works out much better and looks like for you. <laughs> it certainly made a lot of sense going back into research driven from uh, problems uh, seen in field. I mean, I think the thing about problem solving is that most people who do research want to solve problems in a certain way. And I think that's kind of natural. So some of the problems that people need help solving are just boring. So if a problem, if a problem is 
hard but kind of boring and the solutions just require a whole lot of grunt work, yeah. then actually looking at the problem and coming up with a solution might not really be the right thing to do. Correct. You might want to try and find a different problem that Correct. is a bit more interesting and has a, a more quirky solution that fits the sorts of things you are interested in doing. Correct. But I think it's this, this ability to see patterns in different problems. I think that's what makes us <laughs> you know, tick along. So, so then you finish your postdoc, and I think at that point you switch to Imperial, right? Um, That's right. Yeah, I should say actually, I didn't apply to do the the postdoc at Oxford. Actually, I applied to do it at Glasgow. Oh, why? Right. Okay. Because I was still in with this band that I mentioned, right, and that was still right. what I wanted to do. Oh, wow! But then, right about the end of my time at Coplay, that band broke up, and my wife and I decided, having been in Glasgow for a really long time, it would be great to go somewhere different. And the fellowship I applied for was with the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council and facilitated being moved. So actually, when I got awarded the fellowship, I talked to um, my potential mentors at Glasgow and I talked to some potential mentors at Oxford and the Glasgow folks were very gracious about the idea of moving it to Oxford. Um, so yeah, that, that was what took me to Oxford. And then, indeed, I was a postdoc at Oxford, and I managed to get a faculty position at Imperial College in 2011. Right. So I remember meeting you some years ago in Imagination Technologies. I used to work there. And I remember we were talking about some exciting work you were doing on compiler bugs. And um, I think it would be good to talk about that, but I think it would be also better to first take a sample of all of the interesting problems you have been working on in the last few years, and then we can go deeper into the compiler problems or some other interesting problems you might be looking at. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that when people ask me to give a kind of overview of my research interests, the, the things I'm interested in are correctness of software, performance of software, and portability of software. And these three properties of software are quite elusive and in particular it's difficult to have all three of them maybe impossible to have all three of them so we'd like software to, to be correct enough for it to be useful and in some domains that means absolutely correct and in some domains it means reasonably correct we would typically like software to perform well well enough for the task at hand so some software needs to be extremely high performing like computer games for example other software maybe memory is more of a concern or, or whatever and in terms of the cost of software development, it's very costly if software needs to be rewritten or radically modified to run on different platforms. So ideally, we'd like to have programming languages that let us express software at a relatively high level of abstraction so we can focus on the problem being solved and then have compilers that can generate code for a bunch of target languages. And if you have, you know, if you don't care about portability, then you may be able to work on writing software that's both correct and efficient for a particular platform. Uh, if you don't really care too much about performance, then you might be able to write software in a very high level language so that it's likely to by constructing uh, targets. But if you want to have all three of these things, then, then life gets kind of difficult. So yeah, I'm interested in various trade-offs between correctness, performance, and portability. So on the, the performance side of things, I've been interested in looking at languages for making it easier to program multi-core devices, languages for which automatic parallelization is possible, for instance. On the correctness side of things, I've been looking at ways of trying to prove properties of relatively low-level software, so software where the developer is working with 
synchronization constructs explicitly or where the developer is working with language features that let, let them get close to the metal and to do that properly. And from the portability point of view, I'm interested in trying to study the semantics of programming languages, in particular programming languages for concurrent or multi-core systems, and try to precisely characterize the envelope of behavior that you get from a particular programming language construct so that you can understand how different implementations could implement that construct. Um, and therefore you can explain how portable the construct is. So if you know the, the semantic envelope of, a, of a, a programming language construct, then you know that if you write code that only assumes that envelope, it should run correctly on any implementation. Mm -hmm. So this is this was a very nice uh, overview of the correctness, performance, and portability. So tell us a little bit more now about your work on compilers, because I believe from what I know, this has had a profound impact on a number of different hardware architectures underneath. Because you know, as you know, compilers sit as an interface between um, software and hardware. So tell us. What happened and how did you actually stumble upon some of the first bugs and yeah tell us anything you believe is um, uh, is exciting about how you found the first issues that's um... yeah thanks absolutely well before I worked on compiler testing I was working on a project called GPU verify which mm -hmm. was a static analysis tool based on formal verification for trying to prove properties of GPU programs written in CUDA or written in OpenCL. Uh -huh. And I think when I visited your imagination, I think I was probably coming to talk about GPU Verify. Mm -hmm. And that was a really fun project to work on. It was, it was about coming up with a, an abstraction for reasoning about concurrent programs executed by thousands of threads, because GPU programs are executed in a, in a really massively parallel fashion, mm -hmm. and trying to work out a smart way to generate verification conditions for a theorem prover that would allow reasoning to scale well. Mm -hmm. And all of that work was done. I wanted, I very much wanted to do a level of source code so that you could take a piece of GPU source code and with ideally zero modification of that source code, you could apply the verification tool and it could give you either uh, confidence that your program is free of certain kinds of concurrency defects. So I want to stop or, you briefly because I have a very quick yeah. question. So you said you were looking at CUDA program source level verification for concurrency and multi-threading and uh, scoping out the parallelization effects. But you also mentioned theorem proving here. So can you go a little bit more in depth about the connection between the two? Yeah, ones? yeah. right. So the connection is that um, there is a, a theorem proof of from Microsoft research called Z3, uh -huh. which is a widely used theorem prover in the SMT meaning of theorem prover, so mm -hmm. a satisfiability modulo theories solver. Mm -hmm. And there's a project, again, from Microsoft research called Boogie, which was started by Rustin Leno some years ago when he was a principal researcher at Microsoft research. And Boogie is an intermediate language for formal verification. So when you build a compiler, you typically have an intermediate representation for your code and various front ends can compile to that intermediate representation and then you can have code generation from that intermediate representation to machine code for various architectures and the idea of boogie is a little bit related to that but for verification so it's a simple language for expressing whore logic style verification problems okay 
Mm-hmm. And if you've written, if a verification problem is expressed in Boogie, then Boogie can generate SMT formulas to be discharged by any SMT solver, including Z3 or CDC4, for uh-huh. example. Nice. Mm-hmm. And if you then want to build a verifier for a particular programming language, all you need to do, and I say all in quotes because it's still a big job, but it's not nearly a, as big a job as writing the whole thing. All you need to do is find a way to encode your verification problem into Boogie. So what we were doing in GPU Verify was we were taking a CUDA kernel or an OpenCL kernel, which is a GPU program, and we were That's translating cool. that into mm-hmm. Boogie in a clever way that allowed it to scale well. And then um, we were... Sorry, using... how, so how were you ensuring the semantics of the translation was correct and there were no bugs in the translator? Well, I mean, like any... So we weren't formally verifying the translator. So the, the translation we did was a best effort translation. Sure, sure. Fair enough. Yeah. And it was hand um, hand translation in the beginning and then you... Uh, in the very beginning, it was a hand translation. So like the very first... Mm-hmm. You know, I actually started GPU Verify when I was a visiting researcher at Microsoft Research just before I joined Imperial. Uh-huh. It was a collaboration with Shaz Kadir uh-huh. there. And what we did was actually we took kernels that were written in C++ AMP, which was a project from Microsoft at the time, which was kind of similar in spirit to OpenCL and CUDA. Mm-hmm. Standard for, I think AMP standard for Accelerated Massive Parallelism. So we were taking some C++ AMP kernels. We were hand translating them into Boogie using some some of these tricks, these clever tricks to make the to make Boogie verify the property we actually cared about. And then this is where the compilers eventually come in. We wanted to be able to make GPU Verify be like a, a more usable tool and do some interesting research, applying it to hundreds of GPU kernels rather than just a handful. So we built a front end on top of the Clang LLVM framework. Uh-huh. So we take a CUDA or OpenCL kernel written yeah. at source level. Mm-hmm. We would use Clang mm-hmm. or CLang, as some people call it, yeah, to yeah. translate that kernel into LLVM bytecode. Okay, nice. Mm-hmm. And then Peter Collingborn, who's actually now at Google, but at the time he was a, um, a PhD student at Imperial with someone else, and then briefly a postdoc with me. He built a, a translator from LLVM bytecode into Boogie that was geared up towards these GPU kernels we were working on. So we now had a flow that went CUDA source code to LLVM intermediate representation, mm-hmm. LLVM intermediate representation to Boogie, right. Boogie to SMT, and then the theorem prover would discharge the, the formulas and give, give a verification result. Right. So at this point, you were still verifying the correctness of the CUDA programs, and because CUDA programs were predominantly written for NVIDIA architecture, if any issues you were finding were actually in the programs themselves, nothing to do with the compiler or the actual GPU yet. Am I right or wrong? Yeah, you're right. So we were, we were doing both CUDA and OpenCL. OpenCL is cross-platform. Yeah, that's right. And, and Clang had a front-end for both. Mm-hmm. So if we would, so we would give um, a, we would give a CUDA kernel to this tool and it would do data race analysis on the kernel and try to find race bugs. And if it found a race bug, the race bug could be investigated by the user. Mm-hmm. But if it proved freedom of these race bugs, then there were several threats to the validity of that claim. Mm-hmm. The one threat was, of course, there could be bugs in Z3. There could be bugs in LLVM's intermediate representation. Sure. There could be bugs in our tool. Sure. Um, but a, a key threat to validity would be, say you had a CUDA kernel 
and we verified it correct. Mm -hmm. There could be a bug in, say, NVIDIA's CUDA compiler that would mean that that kernel would not actually behave correctly when executed on hardware. So despite us having proved the kernel correct at source level, there could be a compilation bug that would mean that the kernel could misbehave when really executed. Absolutely. And I mentioned NVIDIA there, but the same mm -hmm. goes for any correct. implementation of any language. Correct. So correct. if you verify something at source level, there's always this question of... Synthesis, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, what if the compiler yeah. is wrong? Yeah, yeah. And my friend Anton Lokhmatov, I don't know if you overlap with him when you were on, um, he, a, a friend of mine from Codeplay days, he um, had a suggestion many years ago about how it would be interesting to try doing randomized testing of GPU compilers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Something along the lines of CSmith, which mm -hmm. is a really successful randomized tester mm -hmm. for C compilers. Mm -hmm. And Anton and I talked like some years ago about maybe trying to do something in that area, mm -hmm. but it hadn't come to it. And then when I would give talks about GPU Verify at various places, often people would ask me, well, what if there's a bug in the compiler for the real um, GPU platform that wouldn't that undermine your, um, your form of guarantees? Mm -hmm. So in, in 2004, I put up a master's project at Imperial to see whether someone would like to do CL Smith. So take C Smith, this C random program generator from the University of Utah that had been really successful in finding a whole load of C compiler bugs and adapt it to work for OpenCL to try to find OpenCL compiler bugs. Mm -hmm. And I had a fantastic master's student, Christopher Libri, who then went on to do a PhD with me on a completely different topic. But uh, he did his master's project on building CL Smith, building this port of CSmith to, or not a port of CSmith, but like an adaptation of CSmith sure. to work for OpenCL. And that was really, really surprisingly effective in finding bugs in that there were just tons of bugs in OpenCL compilers at the time, um, totally to my surprise. I mean, we find like <laughs> many, many bugs really quickly hmm. in all the OpenCL devices we tested. Mm -hmm. Some of them were so buggy that we couldn't really test them properly, as in we would find there'd be a, a small number of bugs that would crop up for almost every kernel we generated. So it was that project that got got me um, my first taste of doing compiler testing work. Fascinating. And actually what I like about this is the fact that you went down the whole chain um, and didn't leave it at the source level verification alone and went down at the synthesis level and compiled program. So what what is the status of that work these days? Are you still working on this uh, or is it already something that's done enough um, so you moved on and it's already at production level? Well, what happened with that work is that we talked to various companies um, about the work who had OpenCL implementations. And in particular, we talked to Intel because I had a project funded by Intel at the time. And one contact to Intel was really interested in the work, but, but that, what that contact said was actually, I think they said something along the lines of OpenCL, while it's important to Intel, at that time, OpenGL was actually much more important mm -hmm. to Intel. Okay. So OpenCL is like using GPUs to do compute. But OpenGL is the real graphics API. Mm -hmm. And there are other graphics APIs. And I guess it makes sense that actually there's a much bigger market for GPUs to actually do graphics than there is for GPUs to, to do compute. Mm -hmm. I suppose, and this isn't what the, the person at Intel told me, but I guess like my assumption is that Intel in particular doing mainly integrated GPUs not the kind of GPUs that you use for machine learning, but the GPUs you actually use for graphics. Correct. 
I suppose that, that those GPs really are um, kind of sold for the mm -hmm. purpose they were intended. So in that context, I said, well, would it be easy to, to rework what you have been doing to make it find bugs in OpenGL compilers rather than OpenCL compilers? Uh -huh. So is that what so, you're looking at then these days? or? Yeah, well, well, that then led to this project called Graphics Fuzz, uh -huh. which is a project that um, myself and Andre Lasku, one of my PhD students, started in, I think, around about 2016. And we were joined by Paul Thompson and Hugh Evrar, who also worked in my group at Imperial. And what we did is we built a testing framework for graphics drivers for the OpenGL and OpenGLES programming models. And this was inspired by some work from University of California Davis from Zhendong Su's group there on equivalence modular inputs testing. And the idea of that work was, say you have a program that is free from undefined behavior and it's deterministic. And you run the program on an input, compile the program, run it on an input, and you profile the program to see which lines of code in the compiler get executed. Mm -hmm. So not which lines of the program get executed, but mm -hmm. which lines of the compiler get executed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any lines of code that don't get executed by that input, mm -hmm. those lines of the program, mm -hmm. um, excuse me, sorry. I've oh, those, lines of the those lines of the compiler you meant? Or? No, no, I got, I, got, I got confused. Okay. Co coverage, when you're talking about compilers, there's yeah. always this confusion of, are you talking about the program being compiled? Or the compiler. So let me try again. Yeah. So, so you have a program that's nicely behaved, sure. determinist, sure. undefined behavior. Yeah. You, you've got an input for that program. Yeah. Say you run the program on the input. Yeah. And use profiling or code coverage analysis yeah. to know which parts of the program the input covers. Uh huh. Any parts of the input that don't get covered. Yeah. You could call those. I dead. If I is the input, yeah, those yeah. are I dead. Yeah, so yeah. they're not necessarily mm -hmm, dead mm -hmm. in general. They're dead for that input. Yeah. So this work from UC Davis from PLDI 2014 looked at finding the I dead parts of a program and producing a whole family of related programs by randomly deleting I dead statements okay. to get programs that are equivalent on the input I. Okay, I see. What they found was actually this was a really effective way of teasing out compiler bugs because Although you've not changed the way the program should behave on this input, mm -hmm. you may have fundamentally changed the control flow graph of the program right. by mm -hmm. removing statements here and there mm -hmm. or by mutating statements. Mm -hmm. And if you then compile all the programs in one of these families and run them all on that input I, they should all give the same result. Mm -hmm. And if any pair don't, then mm -hmm. you know that something is wrong mm -hmm. properly in the compiler. Mm -hmm. So we had the idea of trying to use this approach for graphics compilers, but mm -hmm. rather than having an input and doing code coverage analysis, we had the, the, I guess, more general idea of taking an input program, applying a whole load of transformations to that program mm -hmm. to produce a um, semantically equivalent program, mm -hmm. but that was really potentially very semantically different. So for instance, taking a block of code and wrapping that block of code in a loop, mm -hmm. but using some tricks to make sure that the loop at runtime will only do one iteration. Okay. Mm -hmm. So therefore that loop has actually no effect, but a loop, suddenly gives the compiler a whole lot of room to optimize that it didn't have before, mm -hmm. and it may end up misoptimizing. And you can compare the output of the original program with the output of the um, transform program, and they should be the same. And uh, this was on the family of deterministic programs. Yeah, so okay. what we would do is we would write like mm -hmm. OpenGL workloads that would mm -hmm. give a deterministic result. Right. And then we would apply this metamorphic testing technique to produce hundreds of variants of those programs mm -hmm. that should all use the same result mm -hmm. um, 
up to floating point roundup because OpenGL is really relaxed about floating point behavior. So mm-hmm. we would take like relatively numerically stable programs that produced an, Im- an expected image, mm-hmm. and then we would produce these families of equivalent programs mm-hmm. and look for image differences. I see. And if the image mm-hmm. differences are were significant, that that would indicate a bug. And then test case reduction could work by removing transformations until we got to just like the delta that triggered the bug. So we might have applied randomly 100 transformations, and one or two of those may have collaborated to trigger a compiler bug. And by a process of automated trial and error, akin to delta debugging, we could end up finding just the the few transformations that would actually trigger the bug. Mm -hmm. So we would be able to produce a bug report where there would be two graphics shader programs almost identical, but one would have a couple of transformations applied. You could look with your eyes and agree, yes, these should be the same in terms of the image they should render. But you could then run them on a GPU and see that one of them renders a completely wrong image. So this kind of testing is called what? Metamorphic testing, right? Yeah, it's called metamorphic testing. More generally, metamorphic testing is where you detect a bug in a system by a contradiction to an expected relationship between Mm -hmm. two tests. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. So, yeah. And, and I mean, for instance, if you had a word count, if you had a program that would count the words in a document, mm-hmm. if you would take two documents where the second document was derived from the first document by adding occurrences of the word because, mm-hmm. then you could check that the number of occurrences of because reported by your word count program should be larger in the second document compared with the first document. And if you saw a contradiction of that fact, then you know there was a bug. You don't need to actually know how many occurrences of this word there are in either document. Mm-hmm. You just know that an expected relationship between the two documents has been broken. Mm-hmm. So in the compiler's world, we didn't need to know what the expected image was for our program. We just needed to know that when we apply a semantics preserving transformation, the image doesn't change. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how would you debug these things? So if there was a mismatch, um, what would the debug process look like? Well, first of all, the, the first stage of the debug process is, is to run this test case redu- reduction I mentioned. If you would give a compiler developer a pair of test cases where um, one program is a simple program and the other program is like 100,000 lines of crazy transformations mm-hmm. and tell them, these should both render the same image, but they don't. There's a bug. Good luck. Then they're not going to be terribly impressed. So the first stage of the debug process is to run this automatic shrinking where all of the unnecessary transformations are eliminated by randomly selecting some transformations to eliminate, applying the remaining transformations, checking whether there's still an image difference. And if there is, treating the the less transformed program as the new program and trying to remove more mm-hmm. and keeping going until you run out of things to remove. Right. So that's the, the first stage. Mm-hmm. And and then and then it's over to the compiler developer to debug the problem. But the hope is that by presenting them with this pair of programs that are really similar, they should be able to get a head start on working out whereabouts there is a problem in the compiler. I see. I see. For example, they might even look at the code that's covered by the first program versus the code that's covered by the second program in the compiler, I mean there. Mm-hmm. And there may be some interesting optimization that's only covered by the transform program. So then that might indicate, well, you know, there's a high chance the bug is in that optimization, for mm-hmm. instance. Mm-hmm. Hey, so I'm conscious of the time. I want sure. to actually take the opportunity to talk to you something um, about teaching, not necessarily research, because I know you have been very actively involved in the undergraduate programs at Imperial. 
So what is the state of the art these days in terms of students um, adopting discrete maths and formal methods? Because I remember in my time, there was usually not much energy in the student population taking up courses and uh, masters and research projects and formal methods and, and the like. So what is your current experience? Are you finding people at Imperial very much interested in um, doing discrete maths and or they like Java and Python? Well, I think at Imperial, like all universities right now, it's quite difficult to get people to want to do anything other than machine learning uh -huh. at first. Yeah, right. It's right. such a buzz around machine learning that. Mm. Um, so I know for final year projects, for example, some of my machine learning colleagues are inundated with people who want to do their projects, and they supervise a really large number of students per year. Whereas if you work um, in, say, programming languages or verification, then the number of students interested is smaller, uh, which actually from a supervisor's point of view is good because it becomes more tractable to actually talk in depth to the students who are interested and, and oftentimes you can and usually they're pretty serious they don't they don't just say oh it sounds cool sounds like you know uh, the current trend mm. in terms of the curriculum what we do at imperial is we have a lot of discrete mathematics and a program reasoning course and a models of computation course among our compulsory first and second year modules i see so at Imperial, in first year, you do discrete mathematics mm -hmm. and you do reasoning about programs, which involves learning about whore logic. Mm -hmm. And in second year, you do models of computation where you learn about lambda calculus and okay. operational semantics. Okay, nice. And there's no choice. Mm -hmm. And I think that even the students who then don't ever do that again are typically glad they did study it. And they, they do learn a lot from it. And mm -hmm. I think being able to think about data structure invariance and loop invariance as a programmer is a really useful skill, even if you never try in your later career to formally prove that a loop satisfies an invariant. Having the notion of, well, you know, what is, what invariance is this loop maintaining mm -hmm. is a good notion to have in mind. Mm -hmm. What I think is important when you're designing the curriculum is to think about the mindset of your students. So when I was a postdoc at Oxford, I got a bit involved in teaching and I had the impression that the students at that department were very theoretically minded and really wanted to study a lot of pure theoretical computer science courses and mm -hmm. we're quite resentful actually when we set them coursework that involved building practical tools imperial the situation is kind of flipped over so it's an engineering faculty and the students are excellent software developers and get lots of exposure to programming so my strategy with my i, I used to teach a final year course called software reliability which i then co-taught with christian Kadar, and he now teaches it exclusively since i since i joined google that module was trying to be a really practical module on formal and semi-formal verification and testing techniques mm -hmm. and you needed to have a background in discrete mathematics and logic to study the course mm -hmm. but only enough of a background so you needed right. to be like really comfortable with boolean algebra etc but you right. didn't need to be extremely well versed in set theory notation right. or whatever nice and mm -hmm. we got the students to use tools and to build tools mm -hmm. in the coursework mm -hmm. and to read research papers and scrutinize them and that was a really fun course. And I think like one year I taught that course, we had 75 students, which is for a final year option. And mm. I think there were 180 students in the whole year. So that was pretty good going. Yeah, and other, good. other years it's been smaller. But yeah, I think so what is the, theory What is the programming language, very first one that you teach at Imperial? So I know at Cambridge, they are pretty hot on um, standard ML, which I love. Functional uh, languages are great. Uh, which ones are you teaching first? Haskell is the first language we teach. Nice. I'm not okay. in teaching that, but nice. yeah, we teach yeah. Haskell. Mm. And then we teach 
Java, okay. but a kind of imperative Java to try and get people used to imperative programming, not so, so much object-oriented features. Yeah, okay. And then the bit that I teach is object-oriented programming in Java. I see. And then the and then we teach them C. And then so that's in the first year. What we're going to experiment with, um, I think I'm allowed to say this. What we're going to experiment with this academic year coming up is actually teaching them Kotlin after Haskell. So we're going to teach Haskell. Mm. Then we're going to teach Kotlin, which is quite nice because in Kotlin you don't need to have an object or a class in order to do some computation. You I can see. Just write a method, and you can do functional programming Kotlin. So the oh, idea is to use yeah. Kotlin mm -hmm. as a bridge from Haskell to imperative programming via the functional features of Kotlin. Okay. And I then see. introduce Java as an interoperable language with Kotlin and then talk about interfaces and encapsulation and all of the kind of typical object-oriented object mm -hmm. principles. Excellent. Hey, um, time is running out, so I don't want to lose you out in complete technical discussion. Um, a lot of our listeners are actually um, undergraduate students or, you know, early career professionals. And I always take this opportunity to ask my guests about some of the tips that you could leave uh, for our listeners. So may I ask you, what would be your five tips? And given your rich experience straddling industry and, uh, and academia, I can't think of a better person. So Alistair, tell us what we should do. What are your five tips? Oh, thanks for the question. And I should say that to the listeners that actually did um, give you a chance to think about this question a bit in advance. Uh, well, first of all, I would say if you want to pursue a career in research, then choosing a topic you're really fascinated by is critically important. It doesn't necessarily have to be a topic that you think is going to change the world the most. It suffices for it to be something you're really interested in, something you think that you can get up day after day and think about. And of course, you will blow hot and cold about the topic as you work on it. But I think if you choose something that from the beginning you're maybe not that interested in, it's just something maybe strategically you think might be the next big thing, then there's a high chance that it won't work out for you because, you know, uh, if you're not interested, it'll be hard to weather the downtimes of research. Brilliant. Yeah. It's my next. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry. absolutely. Right. Totally agree with you. Um, my next thing would be don't stress too much about novelty. Academic research, especially, does need to be novel. But there are many degrees of novelty and actually taking an interesting idea from a paper you read and thinking about an exciting way you could try that idea out in a new domain, that often is enough novelty to get your work published. And you may learn a ton by going through that process and by re-implementing someone else's idea with a twist. And you may have to do a bit more experimental work to then you know, show that there are interesting differences between the original and the, the new piece of work. Or, but... Typically, you can convince reviewers of papers if you put your if you put enough groundwork in that there is novelty in your new take on this work. So mm -hmm. not everything you do needs to be brand new; it just needs to have a novel twist to it, and it can be really interesting and enjoyable to to do more practical, less novel work. And the graphics first project that I've led, for example, as I mentioned earlier in the the podcast, it built on work of others and applied relatively minor, in some ways, twists to that work, but mm -hmm. it turned out to be a really fun project to work on. And highly relevant for practical applications. That's the most important. Right. Point of Tip number three. Tip number three would be to question received wisdom. So I was told by some people, don't do your PhD the same place you did your undergraduate degree. That's right. Or people have told me, 
oh, it's really dangerous to go into industry after a PhD. If you're thinking about an academic career, it's really hard to come back. Oh, or people okay. told me you have to spend some time in another country, working in another country, if you want to be successful mm-hmm. as an ac- academic. You know, you must you must move around. Uh, and I find this like really disconcerting. I mm. didn't want to leave Glasgow because of the band I was in, and that was more <laughs> important to me, or as important to me as my career. I didn't want to go and move to America after my postdoc at Oxford because I had a young child, and it wouldn't have been the best thing for her or for my wife. So uh-huh. like, there can be many reasons why a lot of the traditional received wisdom you might get mm-hmm. doesn't suit you. And I would say, you know, really take it with a pinch of salt. Actually, what matters is working on the topic you're passionate about and doing good things and, and working with good people. And you don't need to make the rest of your life really difficult to achieve those things. I think having said that, a lot of the work you've been doing over the years has been in collaboration with other people, which basically gives you another perspective, which is what people are telling you to do by switching universities or groups and, and places. And, you know, once you do that, even like you said, with local constraints, family constraints, you could still do that and get those positives uh, to you. Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Well, actually, maybe that means you, you've, uh, it was going to be top tip number five, but let me make it top tip number four, which is collaborate. Right. So I indeed think that collaborations are really fun and really important and can be tremendously beneficial to one's research career. But going back to what I said about the received wisdom, you know, I did a six-week visiting in, visiting research position with Shaz Kadir and Microsoft Research Redmond. Being in person with Shaz for six weeks was amazing. And then that led to a collaboration of several years remotely. So I think that you can, it, you know, you don't have to uproot your whole life and move for mm-hmm. like years of yep. time in order to build these collaborations. And I would also say there's a trade-off. So when I moved to work in Daniel Kroon's group as a postdoc at Oxford, that did open me up to a whole load of new people and new techniques that had I stayed in Glasgow, I probably wouldn't have got, you know, I would have had other opportunities in Glasgow, but not those opportunities. Sure. So I do think there is a trade-off and I think that moving around, you know, does have its benefits. I just think that some people give themselves a really hard time by you know, thinking Sticking that... Sticking to a certain, yeah, <laughs> line of thought, yeah. Right. Good. Also, you know, with institutions, for example, there are like many different institutions you could get an academic job at and some of them are less prestigious than others. But then the quality of life you may live in other ways might vary quite a lot. So there are some places where, you know, it might not be as prestigious, but you may have more relaxed time. Or maybe if you get a paper at a top conference, that's a really big achievement that everyone will be wowed by rather than the normal thing that all of your colleagues are doing all the time. So I think that sometimes when you look for advice, career advice about academia, it often comes from people who are at top institutions and they're giving you the sort of advice you need to get jobs at top institutions, but actually there are many ways to have a, a, an enjoyable academic career. Totally agree. And I guess my final tip would be, and this is for practically minded people, find time to program. A lot of academics complain that they are overwhelmed with other activities and they don't have time to write code. They wish they could get their hands dirty and write code. And I always resolved to never let that happen to me, to always make sure that I could write some code almost every day. And I actually find that if I don't program for a, a significant period of time, I start to get a bit down and be, I can't be what's wrong. And yeah. then I realize actually, you know, I'm itching to actually get my hands dirty and do yeah. some coding. So yeah. for me, it's yeah. worth just trying to find other things to sacrifice in order to get that time. Yeah, totally. can totally agree with that. Uh, it's like the oxygen, you know, we, we need that despite all of yeah. the other things that we have to do, whether in admin role or whatever else. 
But and there might be an analogous top tip. So if you're a theoretical computer scientist, it might be you need you need to find time to prove theorems and think about things rather than just you know writing proposals and and you know teaching is wonderful, but it's very time consuming and bitty. So your time can become very fragmented very quickly, and it can be difficult to get these periods of time blocked out to concentrate. But I think it's good to tell yourself, well, you know, that's like really important, probably more important long term than many of the other things that fragment your time. And it's it's okay to be a bit selfish and say, well, you know, I'm going to say no to things. I'm going to say no to meetings and have some time every week to really focus on the thing that I came in to do this research for in the first place. Excellent. Thank you very much, Alistair. Um, I think in the interest of time, we can agree to wind up today and I'll, I'll get you back because I have other things to talk to you about. But for now, we could say um, we had a very good time with you today and I'm sure we learned a lot of new things about how to get on with your research careers. And for new people trying to get into research, what do you do about novelties and not to get bogged down by stereotypical attitudes? I think they're all very useful advice. Um, so thank you very much again, Ben. Friend, uh, we'll thanks very much. Thanks for having me on the program. Thank you very much. So friends, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. To ping us um, on our YouTube channel, um, email us at info at and we will be back again. Thank you very much. Thank you.